Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams. This is the 11th episode of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, one of the biggest things that bothers me about this particular era is that nothing can stand alone on its own as a piece of art. It needs some type of buzz. It needs some huge event. It needs something. Because everybody wants it to get above the noise or it has to dominate the headlines just for it to exist. That's the problem because people have gotten in their minds that only one thing or one person can occupy people's attentions. And that's just simply not the truth. The fact of the matter is that golden eras or great moments in time have had other things surrounding them that created the context for which it existed. So there were a bunch of things happening at the same time, which drew people's attention, which made them pay attention, which excited them. And that is when we get the event. It's not necessarily one thing happening in a vacuum. It's a gang of things or a bunch of people or a community that exists at the same time. You can't have an era without having contemporaries or competition or a series of events or happenings that existed around the same time, which builds up things to where there's an explosion. One thing doesn't do it. it that's just not how it happens. The Big Bang didn't happen because of one thing. A whole bunch of factors had to come together before the Big Bang occurred, even though everybody just quotes the Big Bang. What happened before it? You have to ask a scientist because the average person just knows the Big Bang. And that's the same thing that happens nowadays with media. When people discuss something, they talk about this one thing. But what led up to it? In order to know what led up to it, you have to know chapter and verse. That particular s- sequence of events, that particular span of time, that era, you have to investigate it or you have to know it backwards and forwards. And that takes real research. That takes long, painstaking work. Man hours. Uh, You have to be committed to doing it yourself. You can't have someone else force you into it. This is something that you have to care about. Something you have to do of your own volition. This is something you have to care about yourself beforehand. This isn't a, uh, an assignment someone can hand you and expect you to do a good, uh, an excellent job at because you don't care about it. A perfect example today is the 25th anniversary of Russell Simmons Fat Jam, which was a pay-per-view event, which was held at an undisclosed location, I believe, in a um, warehouse. And it starred Onyx, Redman, and Run DMC, who was the closing act. The original uh, reports that I read about it, and yes, I did read about it, an analog, handheld, physical magazines and publications from the era. Uh, There was a lot of speculation about who was going to be there. The opening act was supposed to be an R&B group called Silk. And I'm saying that like Silk didn't really exist. Silk, Shy, Jodeci, they all exist at the same time. But I used to call Silk and Shy not Jodeci. To this day, I'm not a fan. I don't give a fuck how many hits they had, lose control, whatever the fuck. Meeting in my bedroom, don't care. Um, Jodeci. 
Anyway, right? So all these publications were speculating on what was supposed to happen there because it was supposed to be a pay-per-view event. And Russell Simmons had his company. Def Jam was was doing numbers. He had Fat Farm popping off. Uh, he had, I hate saying, uh, he had Fat Farm popping off. Uh, Def Comedy Jam. Did I say uh? Def Comedy Jam was really blowing up on HBO. So all that was happening at the same time. And it built up until, okay, I'm going to do a pay-per-view. Because I have all these successful acts coming out of 92 and going into 93. Because uh, Run DMC had just dropped their album, uh, Down With The King. In 93, so that was big. And Onyx had blown up. So that was big. Uh, the NBA had adopted Slam as one of their like big songs for their new campaign, for the new wave of artists. I mean, players that they had coming in. You know, uh, all that was big for Def Jam. You know, they were getting into films. They had put out a film that didn't do well, had T.C. Carson in it back in the day. But like it was funny because in that stretch of time, it was always Def Jam and Uptown MCA. So Def Jam and Uptown MCA in the early 90s were like, you know, going back and forth. If you were around and you remember this happening, you know what happened. Like other people, you have to tell them this and they're like, what? I don't remember that. So Def Jam got into the the movie industry, the movie industry, you know, they wanted to put out movies. And then, you know, Uptown decided to, you know, jump in there. They had this movie called Go Natalie which eventually was called Strictly Business it was starring Tommy Davidson uh, Joseph C. Phillips a young Halle Berry nice and smooth were in it and then on the other side uh, Def Jam put out this movie with you know who the fuck was in that movie oh yeah it was Africa Baby Bam was like the guest star with uh I think T.C. Carson who ended up being um on uh, Living Single as Kyle Barker. And it was like set in Atlanta and he was a he was a um a news reporter. Yeah, that's what happened. That was the story. I'm trying to remember it because I remember everything, but I went to the movies to see it. It sucked. I remember uh Now's the B Turn by Laquan was in the soundtrack. And they had a part where they danced to that horrible Slick Rick the Ruler remix from um, Slick Rick's album, the second album, when he first got out of jail. Then he went back in because he was on um, parole. But yeah, that whole stretch happened. So what happened after that was also on June 18th, 1993, Rosie Perez uh, put out the first episode. It came on HBO. It was the first episode of a show that she had called Society's Ride. Now, it was a raw rap concert for the most part. She had some R&B acts on. I believe she had on uh, Shantae Moore was on. She had like on some reggae, some uh, um, dance hall reggae artists. But the big thing was she had on Onyx, Redman, uh, Black Moon, Brand Nubian, Heavy D and the Boys with Pete Rock and uh, Kid Capri. She had on Leaders of the New School. Leaders of the New School did the theme song, Society's Ride. You can't find any footage on it on YouTube. I've looked. But they also did something that was 
nuts because there were three episodes. All the repeats got aired all throughout summer 1993. So they did a, a mini concert where they did the songs, I believe, Bases Loaded. I think they did Bases Loaded first. I believe they did. I know they did Quarter to Cutthroat. I'm not sure if they did What's Next. But all I know is that it was bananas because their album didn't come out till October. And I believe the lead single came out in right at the top of the school year, school year 93-94. So that would be like September 1993. And I remember it being everywhere because they performed it on Yo MTV Raps. You know, they did their appearance on Rap City. They did the rounds on... um. Uh, was in Living Color still doing shows and stuff like that? So they probably did their appearance on in Living Color. They did all they did all those rounds. But like it was a big deal that they did these songs. What would have been three to four months before the album came out, and like two to three months before the lead single comes out. And they did full album songs, but here's the thing. I found out later by doing um back research, because this is what you do, that uh who said this? Oh, Dante uh Dante Ross said they kept sending them back to f- do the album again and redo stuff from the album. So apparently when they had recorded the show, it looks like the album was supposed to come out sooner than it did. So them performing these songs so many months ahead of the album dropping. And you got, you got to realize that they had to edit these three shows down. So who knows how much time it took for them to edit the show or how long it was before it went on. You know, you got to think maybe two months if we're going lowball because it was a, a couple of few episodes. And also they had a lot of BTS footage. So it looks like they didn't cut out a whole bunch of stuff. So that gives you an idea how long the album was delayed or pushed back. And how many songs that they might have just recorded and just made the album deadline. I haven't tried to look up when the album was done or anything. Because a lot of people haven't done a whole bunch of uh, real research or background on TIME, uh, the End of Mind's Eye album. Because for the most part, that album, it sounded like they were all battling each other to me. And it was because they all had to deal with public scrutiny following their first album coming out because the first album everybody thought the first album is um uh future without a past came out 1991 so this album drops and everybody pretty much is in agreement that Busta Rhymes is the standout a lot of people critiqued uh Charlie Brown for taking bars off or like not doing enough or being aggressive enough with his rhymes. Because it looks like Buster was doing all the heavy lifting. And Charlie was just like, you know. This is people's, their, their perception. That Charlie wasn't doing enough. He had his solo song, What's Pinocchio's Theory. But he didn't go hard enough in it. Like he didn't put his whole ass into it. People don't think. You know what I'm saying? He went half ass. And um, Dink O.D. was, you know. He just, he did some stuff. He had some bars on there. You know. Zone Coaster. He did his thing on some on a few of them tracks. Uh, Transformers, but the thing is that they feel overall that it was Buster's album and Buster outshined everybody. That's why Buster got all the guest appearances. I don't remember too many Dinko D guest appearances. I remember Charlie Brown was on um 
uh, the Ghetto Celeb song, um, Nothing But Flavor. But everybody who hears that song, all they talk about is um, Old Dirty Bastard's part. It was Old Dirty Bastard, Bismarcky, Charlie Brown. I think Charlie Brown went first, and nobody ever talks about that verse because it was forgettable. I mean, go and listen to it. The, the beauty of this ever, too, is that you can jump on YouTube and look up anything I'm talking about. Nothing but flavor, Funk Master Flex, and the Ghetto Celebs. Look it up. But the point I'm making is that these things stood out 25 years ago today. But the people who cover this, uh, I don't even know what to call it. I keep using the word space, but I don't even know if that's accurate i'll have to keep using but people who cover this genre of whatever the fuck this is where they talk about this happened on this day uh and they cover like the supposed history of the culture they don't dig deep enough to talk about what i'm talking about right now they're gonna find something that happened 10 years ago or five years ago or some movie that came out or some television show that started on an odd year 11 years ago today, this happened. What was your favorite blah, blah, blah? That's fucking weak. Do actual work. Like, do your job. Act like you care. And that just doesn't happen. But also, the thing is, with all the big event albums they drop, they all need an event. Uh, the Kanye West uh, albums. He needs to have a big listening event and it needs to be streamed and everybody on social media has to talk about it and everybody has to offer their thoughts and it dominates the news cycle. And if you're not talking about it, then you're not going to be heard. And if you're doing anything else, it's automatically thought that you got buried under. Two things can't exist at the same time. If you released an album... But here comes Jay-Z and Beyonce dropping a surprise album. All of a sudden, nothing else exists but that album. That's bullshit. Because anybody who deals with the underground or indie world knows that's not truth. That's not fact. We always have what's going on up here to deal with. But the people who fuck with what we're doing... That's not their priority ever. And the thing that bothers me the most, so I did a tweet. My tweet was, Cats have been putting out seven um, track projects with found art or art they made themselves, whether it be pictures they would go on Instagram or at one point, uh, twit pick and making albums like that for the longest. Only difference is they used to go up on Bandcamp or SoundCloud first. But now what these cats are doing is revolutionary because it's happening at the mainstream level. And a lot of people were like, got mad at me for saying that because it's like, how are you going to compare something happening down there? Like it doesn't matter anyway with what's happening up here. I was like, well, because the fact of the matter is. Everything that happens up there had to happen down here first. That's how the world works. Something is always a fringe thing. It's always part of a subculture. Before it ends up mainstream and then it's consumed by the masses who think that's where it started. 
If you don't know that's how things work, then you must be new here on Earth. I always have to explain to people that what they call hip hop fashion now, where it's this big industry and there are people who are designers and stylists and blah, blah, blah. Basically, how that started is if you were a hip hopper, nothing catered to you. So you had to modify it to your liking or what fit your lifestyle. Or what fits your everyday life. Or what better worked in your borough or neighborhood or city or region or keep going. If you were a b-boy and you wore Lees, you might have had to do something to those Lees so that you could go to the ground easier. Because again, parents would complain if your clothes looked a certain way when you came from outside. We really had to go outside. And so you had to do things. Or if you were going to the ground, like dancing, b-boying or whatever, you wanted to do things that, you know, made it easier for you to do some moves. So you might have done stuff to your pants legs. You might have done stuff to your um, to your creases. You, you might have did certain things a certain way, you know, depending on where you lived or the era you lived in. There were different aesthetics that people preferred or just you individually and then maybe it caught on with other people and this is how hip-hop fashion evolved it was about the people taking things not intended for them not made for them because these companies don't give a fuck about us it's about money they don't believe you exist until you prove it until they see sale till they see their sales numbers go up and they get a report that someone's wearing this and people are buying this there that's when you exist not beforehand. That's just a fact. That's how things work. So, Lees were not hip hop clothing. Lees were Lees. Hip hoppers made them hip hop clothing. Never forget that. Techniques didn't make turntables for DJs. That played hip hop or rap music. They didn't know they existed. It was the hip hop DJs who adopted a particular model of techniques, then moved on to the techniques 1200s and then the 1210s, which then made them say, oh, we got to pay attention to these folks over here because apparently that's our audience. We had no clue. We thought we were just making turntables for, for audio files. But apparently, they use them for this. When Roger Lynn made the Lindrum and the other following equipment and the other following, you know, uh, drum machines or what have you, sequencers, whatever, he did not make them with hip-hop or rap producers in mind. He didn't know they existed. He had no idea that they would use his creation for that purpose because he didn't know that that was a purpose it could be used for. It was the hip hop producers. It was the B-boys. It was them that used his equipment 
used his creations, used his drum machines, and made this music with it, and found techniques which with to use it that astonished him when he found out. This is how the world works. Not the other way around. Everything goes down up. There's no trickle down. It goes from down up. I know because I've lived it my entire fucking life. I've seen it happen. Then came the creation of something they called cool hunting. Slash market research. Slash youth marketing. Where they would go and they would find something. Some subculture. Something that was popping. That was interesting down here. You go. You get it. You find out what it is. You appropriate it. You mention it. You put it out there in the mainstream. What ends up happening a lot of times is it gets cannibalized. And then it's no longer cool. Then it dies out. Then you go and you find the next thing to destroy. That's how it works. They almost killed b-boying. I told the story about 1995. 1985. When I was a kid. You would see somebody fucking go to the floor and try to do a windmill during Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins or something. You know, let's hear it for the boy. You're going to top rock to this? Why? Because you saw it in a video? So these are the type of things that happen. And I think people don't know that. So they assume that if there's a big mainstream event or something that happens, it's taking all the air out of the room. No, it hasn't. We've always had to deal with this. A lot of things that were big down here, nobody else up there cared about. But fuck them. Eventually, more people are going to catch on to this. A few months ago was the 35th anniversary? 35th anniversary of a Canadian animated film called Rock and Roll. Highly influential cult animated film. Rock and roll. I knew about it. I grew up with it. So what's weird is that when rock and roll first came out, is it debuted. They debuted it in Boston. But they didn't advertise it well, so very few people came out to see it in theaters. So based on that, the company who didn't put any money into it, because the thing is that the people who started, it's an animated film that was done by hand. And it took years and years of development. And by the time it was done, the project... The people that originally were on board with it and really passionate about the project either were let go or they left for greener pastures. You know, Don Bluth was opening up his studio. Disney was doing work. So the company's called Nelvana in Canada. I think they've done a whole bunch of other things since then. that Maybe people know who Nelvana is. I think they got they merged with somebody else. But back then, you know, it was just another company trying to make money and struggling in the late 70s, early 80s, and trying to hit a home run. And this project that they were doing involved a lot of, you know, famous artists and singers and musicians. And that production was bananas. Matter of fact, if you go on YouTube and look up, uh, I think they have a mini documentary on making a soundtrack for rock and roll, which is funny because a rock and roll soundtrack actually never came out. Another thing. But the reason I'm mentioning this is that Rock and roll 
didn't have a big opening in theaters. It barely came out in theaters. The company pretty much abandoned it. And what ended up happening is that it just got sent to, it was made a VHS tape, which wasn't easy to find, but it got sent to cable. And, and cable is where it found its audience. A audience of young kids and young adults would see it. A lot of them taped it because you couldn't find it in the video store. They would go asking, go looking. A lot of them were special order it. It would never come because Nelvana didn't put any money into it and they barely produced cassettes for sale. They didn't realize that it, what a cult sensation it had become. And this is why I'm telling the story. Years pass. And here's the thing. I've talked about this before. Errors go and generations go every three to five years. It's micro generations, right? So if this film came out in 83, let's say it hit cable between 80, 84, 85, as time passes and more people get cable and people get older and more people taped it and showed it to more people and more people go to video stores, video stores get more popular, more people go looking for it at video stores, more people try special ordering it, more people talk about it, more people show it to their friends, and more and more years pass and more and more people catch it on cable because more and more people get cable. You get what I'm saying? It's a domino effect. And it rolls over years and years and years and years, generation after generation after generation after generation, or micro generation after micro generation after micro generation. So by the time we hit the late 80s or the early 90s, there are kids that are in school talking about, yo, you seen rock and roll? You never saw rock and roll? And they go over to their friend's house and they show them rock and roll. I was one of those kids. So fast forward to 2000 and you hear lines like, I rock and roll like Mark on Fantastic Volume 2 by Slum Village. Now, I'd already loved that album. My brother and I loved that album. But when we heard them name drop rock and roll, we went nuts because we were like, yo, we'd already bonded with this group. We'd been hearing about from The Roots and Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest and everybody for years and reading about in liner notes. Like, y'all got to check these out, check these dudes out or reading about them in interviews. And that made us love them even more because they were like us. They spoke our language. And this happened time and time again. We're about to approach the uh, 25th anniversary of uh, the Wu-Tang Clan's uh, Enter the 36 Chambers. And one of the things the Wu did throughout their projects is they mentioned things like the killer tape. They watched the killer. They would drop uh, audio from Crying Freeman. They would mention Gogo 13, The Professional. These are things we all saw. This is anime we all saw. So, being dudes in the hood, run around, play basketball, steal some shit, try to talk to girls, you know, and then watch some cartoons on TV, and then watch these anime videos that we got super VHS tapes that were recorded from DVDs imported from Jap not DVDs um, laser discs laser discs recorded to super VHS tape that we got from Japan this is before DVDs what am I talking about this is the early 90s to mid 90s and what we did was we would watch those and we watched these tapes for years 
then when we saw, wait a second, these dudes from Staten Island know about the same anime we watch and are referencing the same manga from Viz that we read in the comic book store. You know, talking about shit like uh, Ninja Scroll, which came out in Japan 25 years ago. It didn't make it here. Eventually. It didn't make it here immediately. First, it came here th- via um, Laserdisc. Then it made it here through imported cassette tapes. And then later it got picked up by a, 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 a distribution company in America and was made widely available. It really exploded with the advent of DVD around 98, 99. That's when Ninja Scroll really blew up because it was still fringe when it hit video stores and it was on VHS tape. I know this for a fact. I was working in video stores. I saw the shit happen. But the thing is that, yes, this is an underground culture, but it grew. So now that these type of things are mainstream, people think that it was always that way. No, things work from the bottom up. So to say that things that happen up here dominate everything is bullshit. And more than one thing could exist and coexist at the same time. And that's always been the case. It's just that you didn't know that because you have a myopic view of what happens. It just bothers me that people are so short-sighted. Uh, one th- okay, so let me give you an example of something that's weird. I don't know how many of you are familiar with, there used to be a network called G4 TV. And it always had to battle to gain. The big issue that they had was that they always wanted a bigger audience. You get a bigger audience, it opens you up to more advertisers. It opens you up to more advertisers, it's more opportunity for you to stay alive as a network. This is the thing every new network has to deal with. Because you need to get a certain uh, group of people that are available to watch your show so you can grow it. And then when you have this resume, you can go to different companies with deep pockets and say, hey, we have the demographics that you want to. uh, We have the specific demographics that you're looking to advertise to. Because basically that's what everything is. Radio isn't about radio or playing songs and feeding the community, which is what it was when I was a kid. It's advertising. It's do you have the specific demographics we desire that we would like to advertise our products? That's all it is. And that's the same thing with network television. Well, let me get back to the point. This is their motivation. So there's a guy, Kevin Pereira. He works at the network. First, he was like a writer, errand boy, whatever. And then he ends up like hosting shows. And then he ends up getting more responsibility because he was doing everything else behind the scenes. You might as well be in front of the camera, too. Makes sense, right? Okay. so they come to him and they give them this big board slash graph. And what it does is it has different demographics or their core audience. And it has the one thing that they love. The one thing that they loathe and the one thing that you want them to move towards. And he's looking at this board and he's scrutinizing it. He's like, well, this doesn't make any sense. You've taken these people 
and you've scrunched them down to these truncated bullshit versions of what you think they are and what their motivations are what you think they like like they can only like one thing like i know for a fact i love this and this thing all the way at the end of the board that you claim that i hate because i fall into this category i actually love and my friends love it too so and then you try to make it seem like you can only like one thing at a time or only one of these things when actually you can be into all of them at the same time and instead of this thing that you claim that they all want and desire and love they actually don't want that at all. Matter of fact, they'd want this. So it starts moving things around on the board. And basically, the point I'm making is that Kevin does this to prove to them that you can't narrow cast people in this way in hopes of advertising to them or trying to reach them because it's going to backfire. What you should just do is find something that works for you that will resonate with people regardless of their background or their income level or what have you and then work from there. And that's how you will grow your audience. They looked at his board and they said, "Okay, we'll take this up to the people now that you fixed it around and um, and co-signed on it. And it was at that moment, he says that he knew that the network was doomed. Because they did not understand the point he was trying to make. Things aren't cut and dry, black and white. In the way that you'd hope for them to be in business. They're just not. That's why when you listen to this podcast, I'm going to talk about a variety of subjects. And it's not because I'm purposely trying to hit all these different topics and all these different things to show how eclectic I am, blah, blah, blah. No. This is because I feel like talking about different things at different times because I'm a fucking person. I'm human. If I talked about the same thing over and over and over again, I'd be bored. It'd be repetitive and you'd be bored and it'd be repetitive. Well, I hope you'd be bored. I don't actually know. All I know is that people listen and I hope that they give me the leeway to do something different every time. Or if I want to do the same thing back to back, give me the leeway to do that. One of the things that I see a lot on um, with YouTubers and the YouTube creators is that they don't really have a voice. So what they do is they go off whatever people respond to, which I think is dangerous. If they do a story time and people love the story time, they see the numbers behind the story time. And since this is before the adpocalypse happened. They got numbers because of that story time. They're going to do another story time. Then they do another story time. Then rather rather than even doing what they hope to do beforehand, they're the story time person. They don't get an opportunity to grow or be themselves. They have to do something because of numbers. Because of metrics. And catering to numbers and metrics will get you fucked up. Out here in these streets, these digital streets, I've seen it happen time and again. I've seen a lot of uh, blogs and because they don't exist anymore and no one cares about them anymore. And I've seen a lot of uh, news conglomerates and media sites get really wrapped up in their numbers and their audience and who they're serving and try to go 
full out for them and end up losing them because they don't realize that how they got them was doing a variety of things that touched them and gained and piqued their interest. When you start going one way all the way and you put all your eggs in that basket, you're fucked. Barstool Sports is catering to a bunch of meathead, racist fuckboys with with colored up shirts. And at some point, they're going to write a check their asses can't cash. Because they went all the way left. But they can eat a dick. What I'm trying to say is, if I haven't said it already, is that a lot of times numbers or metrics will force you to do something that you didn't feel and then all of a sudden shit ain't fun no more because you're not doing what you love. You're not doing something that's authentic or from the heart. That's why a lot of times you look and you see somebody who is hot on YouTube put up a video talking about how they had to step away because it wasn't fun anymore and it was becoming a chore and they didn't feel like they could do certain things anymore and it got to be a pain and it started affecting them mentally and it negatively affected their health. Of course it did. You were living a lie. But the thing is that it was making you money and you were and it was prosperous for you. So you rode that wave until Adpocalypse happened. Shortly after Adpocalypse happened and a lot of people started getting demonetized and there was a an algorithm that you couldn't predict what was going on. All of a sudden, a lot of people started feeling like they were pointed, they were uh, painted in the corner. And they were stuck doing things that they necessarily didn't want to do, all because this is how they built their followings. That's unfortunate, but that's the thing that happens. Then you got to go all in until it's not worth it anymore. And a lot of times, the thing that makes it not worth it other than your health deteriorating because money money and make you look the other way in a lot of cases is when the money stops and when that money stops now you don't have an excuse to fall back on you could deal with a lot of pain when you're getting paid you could deal with a lot of bullshit if you're getting paid a lot of things could go away when you have health issues when you could throw money at it guac is extra whatever man Just throw that cash at it. But when it comes down to, yo, this isn't sustainable anymore. And now it's going to make it even more of a stressful situation because the money you were relying on isn't coming in to assuage that guilt that you had for doing for making bullshit. You ain't got no more excuses. Now you got to face the music. And this is and that's one of the things that happens. But people that look more at metrics than at the whole overall picture or delve deeper than the surface, they don't get it. And the problem is that they're the type of people that never will. Perfect example, man, is when I watch basketball games, they're the people that analyze it and talk about it on a level where it's poetry. Little things that are mundane or seem that way 
they can turn it into something that the entire game hinges on. They can make the little thing big. And they can explain it in a way no one else can. Because they're that passionate about it and they understand every piece, every minute piece of this game. Where they can spell it out for the average person, the lay person, the person watching, the viewer. It's like that sometimes when I watch people comment on fighting games. They'll be right there and they will explain everything. He, the V-trigger and... Now that's a hit he could punish and and this and this, the hitbox changes and they can explain some technical shit that the average everyday person who's only a casual fan will understand and it will take them to fucking YouTube or Wikipedia or they'll look more into it because now they're fascinated by the depth and complexity of the game. They're just thinking as people... Across from each other pressing buttons. But the way that this person explained it. Made them realize. That it's a mind game on par with chess. And there's a lot of psychological stuff happening. There's a lot of baiting. There's a lot of trying to draw somebody to do something. It's like tennis. You're trying to get somebody into a specific area. To do something where you have an advantage. Or you're trying to get somebody uncomfortable. Or throw them off. There's a lot going on, you know, and the average person doesn't catch that. But the right person who understands the culture can highlight it. That's one of the things I try to do with my journalism. I wanted to talk about rap albums or R&B albums on a level that made people who loved it and got it happy that I wrote it. Because finally I put something that they thought Every time they heard an album or maybe something that they thought or something they talked about with their friends who are music heads, but never really saw in print what they always wanted to see. And on the other side, for somebody who's just reading an article about music and they might not be all that into it, but they've heard of the album and it was like, eh, I'll just read it. Now they want to delve into that album and it pushes them further to research Or what other albums are like that? Or what else can I look into? That's what I'm going for. I want to write something where people will be reading it for the next 5, 10, 15 years. A lot of people out here are getting paid and they're putting out content. I'm using air quotes. You can't see it. That no one's going to give a fuck about in two weeks. If that. No one's going to revisit that video. No one's going to revisit that interview. No one's going to read, reread that write up. No one's going to take that particular article that you wrote and no one's going to bookmark it for later because no one gives a fuck because it's busy work. It's just there to draw up site traffic and be forgotten about. So if somebody was to go through and say, all right, we're selling this company, we're rebranding. We're going a different route, so we're deleting all these old posts. It wouldn't matter because no one's going to go back to read that shit anyway. Or watch that shit anyway. Because it didn't resonate with anybody because nobody fucking cares. The only way 
to evoke these kind of emotions is to have people that actually understand something and care about it and know it inside and out be the people that lend their voices to something that advocate for it. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with a culture where everybody just wants to get the big news story and be seen there like they're popping and be there with all the hype beasts and be there with all the tastemakers and be there with all the all the fucking um, all the supposed people that are gatekeepers. I say supposed people because fuck them then we've lost sight of what's supposed to be happening in this space of journalism, music journalism, uh, reporting. Basically, it's gotten to the point where you can't be a journalist anymore, a real objective journalist. You have to either be PR or a fucking dick writer or a stan. I don't want to be your publicist. I don't want to be somebody's looked at where I'm waving a fucking towel for you. I'm not ML Carr for you. I don't want to do that shit. If you put out some trash, I want to say you put out trash and then have everybody come out and say you're a hater because I'm not one of those dick sucking shadows. Not over here just like co-signing everything you do nodding my head like an idiot to beats to the trash I don't want to do that I don't want to go out on record saying that this is a top three album of the year when I know I heard three better albums last week but you didn't hear them because they didn't come out on a major label these are things that bother me all the hyperbole all the lies because you want to have the artist from that label sit at your show or be on your podcast or you want them to RT what you tweeted this is bullshit just be honest and direct and have people respect you for that but no that's not how this thing works if you stand alone and you call out shit like you see it Chances are people are not going to rock with that because you're fucking up the money, whatever that means. I don't really get that because there's no real money out here like that. Everybody's trying to squeeze a rock to get blood out of it. I remember when there was money out here, 96, 97, 98, when motherfuckers could get disgusting budgets to do remixes. I remember when that all dried up. I remember when there was crazy money out here when cats were just ghostwriting everybody's albums and getting plaques and buying houses and not having to go on tour or be on TV because let that asshole do it. And then let that person be broke after their album flops and then they don't get another one. But I'm still out here ghostwriting for people. I remember when money was like that. No, I didn't live like that. That wasn't my money. I knew the people that were doing it. When you know where the bodies are buried... Everything looks different. When you know who's lying, everything's different. 
This game is essentially they live. Motherfucker, I got on Ray-Bans. I don't know if there's anything else I'll say after that. Fuck it, I'm gonna end it like that. One.